Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms, conscious commentary on business and society. This is Matt Renner. I'm the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm joined by Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. This podcast is designed to give the Academy's outlook on the economic, political, ecological factors that affect our listeners. Today we have a special guest, Kay Peterson, a specialist in adult development and experiential learning for business leaders and anyone else who strives to continue learning throughout their life. In the lightning round, we'll be discussing ways to protect your investments, including our outlook for gold and fuel prices. But first, Ronaldo, let's talk about the macroeconomic factors that are currently uh, at play in various global situations we're seeing in the news. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Ronaldo. Hey, I really appreciate um, how challenging it's been the last few days to get this all together with um, what's been going on in the world and what's been going on at the World Business Academy, which is very exciting, and we're going to be talking about that later in the show, I know. Uh, But uh, for today, starting out, I think we want to talk about Putin a little bit, don't we? Yeah, I think the situation in Ukraine is a really good uh, place to start because it it has so many factors that we've been talking about included. So let me me hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so I, to me, you know, Putin wants to be a modern-day czar, and, and I say that with all seriousness. I mean, uh, purportedly he has 16 palaces. I know the new one he just built for himself in the Black Sea, interestingly enough, very close to Crimea. Uh, he did that, in, and in fact, his, his approach has been to um, see himself in this grand style, and he's what, what he sold the Russian people, and I think he sincerely believes it, by the way, is the rebirth of the grandmother Russia, almost czarist Russia. And he's been trying, as you know, to rebuild a block of countries around Russia to, so it starts to come back into looking like the USSR, I mean the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, not just the nation of Russia. And he's seen this, and he's articulated this as his antidote uh, to both NATO and the common market, both, meaning the EC. Um, his plans to do that have been dealt a massive blow in what's gone on in Ukraine. Um, it's, 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 so it's, it's, it's several things going on at once that people have to understand. Number one, because I think Putin has, uh, sees himself as in a corner. Uh, number one, he has to maintain that enormous base in Crimea. It's the largest Russian um, uh, naval base outside of Russia. It's, 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 it's a huge port for them. It dominates the Black Sea. The Black Seas, they consider their front doorstep. So it's really a huge loss. It would be sort of like if, if on, a, on a given day, um, all the Japanese and all the Germans voted all of our bases off of both Italy, uh, Germany and, and Japan in one fell swoop. Yeah. Um, and although I'd like to see all, all those bases closed or greatly reduced, I think you'd, you, you'd want to adjust to it and it'd be easier to, uh, for us to adjust to losing bases in Japan, uh, you know, tens of thousands, many thousands of miles away, than it would be for him to lose the Crimea and the black, deep water port at, uh, 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 for his Black Sea fleet. However, having said that, it's also a huge blow, as I said, because he, it, it means that the other countries that are looking at Ukraine are going to be less likely to want to join his new Soviet rebuilt um, uh, economic and military bloc. So he's, he's sort of trapped. What I would love to see happen 
is I'd love us to recognize that and give him a face-saving way to get out because I don't want to go to war for Crimea, and I don't think anybody else does. But at the same time, I think we have to bring this to a, a good resolution. And discussions, negotiations, and politics are always preferable to bullets in my mind. Yeah. So what I would urge the Americans and the Europeans to do is to say, Mr. Putin, you got yourself a bit in the corner here. Let's, let's paint a doorway for you to get out. You leave with your troops, and within um, a week, two weeks, we will monitor a fair plebiscite in Crimea. And if the Crimeans want to leave Ukraine and rejoin Russia, which I'm suspecting 65% of them do, then we should let the Crimeans relink with Russia because they basically are Russians. Their native tongue is Russian. They, 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 they identify as being Russians. And they feel sort of stranded, tacked onto the end of the Ukrainian country. The rest of Ukraine, which is about 85 90%, 85% larger than that, can then be much more solid as an independent country and won't be trying to get up off of its knees, crippled by a constant warfare status with its own subjects, so to speak, in Crimea. Now, I really think that's a plausible solution. It gives the Crimeans a chance to say what they want. It gives the Russians a chance to step down and save face because they'll end up with Crimea. And it gives the Ukrainians a better fresh start as a new country. Having said that, the other reason I like it, and I'll end with this, is I believe it gives us an, an, a new way of looking at all of these separation issues. There are many places in the world, like Kurdistan is probably the most famous, where a group of indigenous people that have very little to do with the people whose country they got in by accident, i.e. Turkey, they have more to do with the uh, Turk. They have more to do with what's going on in northern Iraq. The Kurds do. So northern Iraq has Kurds. Um, Turkey's got Kurds. It, there's no logical reason why there isn't a Kurdistan. And if we allowed that to happen, that long-standing guerrilla war between the Kurds and the Turks could come to an end simply by vote, and it wouldn't hobble or hurt Turkey. Well, the way to look at this also, even at the United States' level, is we have probably about 9 to 13 states, somewhere in that area, of the United States of America, who if you said they can leave the country and form the new Confederate States of America, if you said we're not going to force you to stay, my guess is – the, the, the right-wing Tea Party extremists of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, conceivably Georgia, certainly South Carolina, possibly North Carolina, possibly Florida, although I don't think Florida will go. The rest of those states would choose to form a new Confederate state, and they can elect Rick Perry their president, or they can have Michelle Bachman be their vice president, and we should let them go. Because what they're doing is they're blocking the forward progress of the rest of the United States of America, just as a continuing struggle in Crimea for the next five years will block the progress of the country of Ukraine. So, Arnaldo, what you're proposing is something of a, a, a radical departure from the sovereignty and the way national boundaries have been established for the last 200 or 300 years uh, in some ways. Do you think that those implications, how, how would that affect the, the politics and the, and the macro economy. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think that it would affect politics and macro economy both. But just because you use the word sovereign, or I call them sovereign nation states. Yeah. I just want to focus people historically. Sometimes we, we we forget where we came from. You know, there's this great quote by by the uh, philosopher Santana: "If you do not read history, you're condemned to repeat it." Well. 
we know that we emerged in the Western industrial societies. We, we are the we're the, the the direct descendants of Greece and Rome, Athens, all the Athenian states actually were all city states. Rome was a city state. Somehow we got confused in the 17th century, literally, 15 to 1700 years later, that some arbitrary alignment of a map of a line on a map which is not even a real line in most cases, it's artificially drawn, somehow means that the people within the line are supposed to be different than the people outside the line, when in fact the people inside the line might be closer to the people outside the line. Um, I wrote about that before the Iraq war broke out, saying there is no Iraq. There's really three countries, Kurdistan, Sunnistan, and Shiistan, and if they would confederate, they could avoid a war. Uh, Joe Biden ultimately, six, seven years later, came out with a, uh, certainly five, six years later, came out with a similar suggestion. I'm saying the same thing now, meaning the city-state, which um, could be called um, Georgia, if you will, a city-state, if it chooses to think of itself that way, called Mississippi or Louisiana, can combine with other city-states if that's what they are more comfortable than staying locked in a union with the northern states, where the divide culturally is larger than the legal or economic divide, meaning in the states I mentioned that would like to break off, and there's an active movement starting now, uh, Matt, to break off these southern states. I mean, it's, it, the Tea Party's on to this idea. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's sort of like, if you don't believe, if you believe this, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of everybody in the United States of America and that we should be a Jesus nation, a theocracy, which many people in the Tea Party believe. They believe that should be our national religion. People in New York and California don't believe we should have a national religion. Neither did the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution. So if you really want to have Jesus as your savior and run your country, you really don't belong in this country. You know, you can still have, be a Christian and stay in this country, but if you believe that there ought to be an official religion called Christianity, that's not consistent with the, with, with the Constitution of the United States of America, nor with our founding principles. If you believe that women should not have the right to control their own body, which is, you know, the last abortion clinic in the entire Rio Grande Valley closed yesterday. Now, I'm not saying I'm for or against abortion, but I know this. Before we had legal abortions, people were dying from self-administered and backroom abortions, and I believe that the issue of abortion is primarily a medical one, not one that should be decided by someone else's morality. So it's a decision for a woman and her doctor. And the, the state is getting involved uh, and wants to make it illegal. In fact, is making it illegal in Texas. That's a cultural issue. That's got nothing. To, that's way more than laws because it probably, at some level, the Supreme Court would say infringes on a woman's right to choose. That's Roe v. Wade. Yeah. So, well, and you go down that list, it, it, the list keeps getting longer. And now the economics, just to answer that part of your question, the economics yeah. I think would be better for the blue states. Because right now they subsidize the red states. I think the red states would prefer the economics because they could return to the more provincial path that they seem comfortable with. They seem to be happy with the idea of a parochial, um, uh, kind of bucolic, agrarian-based, almost a fantasy of the antebellum period. If that's what they want to do economically, okay, go back and do it. I think the rest of us need to be accelerating forward because this is a time which requires dramatic change. Yeah, and when you and I have discussed this concept before, it's, it's a really interesting one, and it's challenging in a lot of ways. Uh, one thing that we discussed, just to wrap up on this, is that there would be some very liberal uh, immigration policies so that anyone who wanted to get out of the red states, if they chose to break off, 
had the opportunity and a subsidized ability to come to the blue states and help programs to help them transition so that people who are underrepresented in the politics of those red states didn't necessarily stay trapped in a regressive society. But another another issue on that, on that, Ronaldo, that divides along some similar lines is the minimum wage. And it's something that we have here on our list to talk about because it's in the news these days with the uh, Obama administration and a lot of private sector embrace of an increase of the minimum wage at $10.10. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good transition. Um, and by the way, I, I want to point out that no less a enlightened human being than Mahatma Gandhi came up with the same conclusion you and I just did, and that's why he, with great regret, allowed the partition of Pakistan and India. Right. And, and and in those days, they did it in a very sloppy, too fast way, and there was a lot of bloodshed that could have been avoided, although it was less bloodshed than they were already sustaining. In the conversation you and I had, we said, let's give people five years to choose and their passport will be good for those first five years, so that a lot of people can really figure out where they want to land. And I think it takes that kind of a lengthy time in order to make it smooth. But you bring up minimum wage, and that's a key economic, it really follows on nicely to your first question. Every reputable economic article I've read, every paper I've read that's reputable, every neutral analysis I've read that's at all credible economically, says that raising the minimum wage is going to be great for the economy. It is the right thing to do, meaning I find it to be morally reprehensible. I find it to be incongruous with a free society that somebody can work hard 40 hours a week at even McDonald's or Walmart and be below the poverty line. That's, that's not acceptable to me, and I call on every person living in the United States of America to declare it is wrong to work 40 hours a week and to be below the poverty line. So we must raise the, the minimum wage so the people who are working hard 40 hours a week actually are surviving at or above the poverty line. Yeah. And number two, that's the moral question. Number two, though, the economic question. The, there is no question, Matt, that is not even one scintilla of a doubt in my mind, that when you raise the, the minimum wage, you actually increase the economic activity, and particularly at the local level. So at a time when people are worried about Main Street not getting a fair shake and the international banks getting all the goodies – it's incredibly important that the people who live on Main Street get a higher minimum wage so they can spend the bulk of their money on Main Street. So the economy will go up by a greater percentage than the cost to actually improve the lives of people with a minimum wage going from $7.10 in many cases to $10.10. I also want to point out, in addition to the call by the president to raise it, which is correct, and the right economic choice, We'll all get even the rich will be better off will be richer by raising the minimum wage it's if you want me to talk about that anybody please ask because that's an absolutely accurate statement the The idea that we will now have six states who on their own initiative are raising it to that level over a period of two to three years you've got um, the governor of Maryland who reported recently that having done it once they've already seen the economic lift and now he's going back to try and increase the speed with which the minimum wage kicks in you've got California. Uh, going to ten dollars an hour, so you got six states already who've agreed to do it. You got the federal government on new hires because of the executive order President Obama issued, and I believe it would be in the nation's interest for the for the Congress to immediately follow suit with a national minimum wage raise. Should Congress be so stuck it can't, 
every blue state state worth its salt should do it because it's the smart and fair and just thing to do. And frankly, the red states should do it because it, they will get a disproportionately bigger benefit. They have so many more minimum wage people. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's an interesting challenge for the, the Congress because it does go right in the face of the ideology of uh, essentially laissez-faire, allowing corporations to do whatever they want in their short-term best interest. However, the Democrats are using it pretty effectively as a political tool and a wedge issue because I think at the street level, people really grasp the idea of getting a raise and how much better that would make their day-to-day stressors and how much more positive it would be to go to work if they knew that they could afford to live a decent life if they were getting paid uh, just a few dollars more an hour. So, hey, hey, do you know how much, you know how much that would lift? I'm sorry. No, right, go ahead. No, we, I, you, I didn't mean to cut you off. You had a sentence there. What would, no, what no, you, I just said we'll, we'll see how that plays out on the political stage. Yeah, well, and, and I was just going to comment on not only does it relieve the stress that you talked about for the person earning less than the minimum wage, which I find to be an, an unconscionable stress. It's just wrong. It's morally flawed. It's also hugely bad economics because when you give an extra penny to a person below the poverty line, they're going to spend it immediately. You give a penny to, to, to Warren Buffett, it will not get spent. It will get put into some electronic bank account somewhere. So when you give that penny out to the lowest paid members of our society, you get this huge multiplier effect, which says for every penny you give them, you'll get five and a half to at least cents more in economic activity. That's why it makes sense to raise the minimum wage. We are a consumer economy. Now, unless you want to change that, which nobody seems to want to change, you've got to see to it that your consumers can afford to consume. It's that basic. And people right. below the poverty line are no longer able to consume. It's also, I want to point out to our listeners, we are paying a minimum wage indirectly because we are, we are, we are subsidizing McDonald's, if you will, by paying for their, for their employees' health care in emergency rooms. We're subsidizing that McDonald's worker by paying for many of their social costs, which, frankly, they can't afford to pay. So we're getting caught. Food stamps is another example. We're getting caught paying for this stuff indirectly in more expensive ways. It would be empowering to the poor, to the working poor. It would be very empowering if they could get more money and make their own choices how to spend it, and it would save us a ton of money, and the economy would rise. Uh, Ronald, one, one issue that we want to touch on and we generally talk about every show because there's just so much news and the acceleration of the events that lead us to the conclusion that global warming is the biggest threat we face as a species. Uh, I, I wanted to see if you wanted to touch on that quickly about anything that's been in the news lately about the acceleration of climate change and uh, essentially the, the new indicators we're seeing coming out of the scientific community. Sure. Well, many months ago on this program, we, we warned people about what happens when you start to mess around with the jet stream. Because when we started to see that wobble a couple of years ago, and we saw a detectable shift in the pattern of the jet stream, where the dip that constantly should have been just over Bismarck, North Dakota, in a V-shape, um, ended up becoming a much broader dip, a wider dip, an elongated dip, I started sending out the message, uh-oh, we've messed with the jet stream, and when you mess with the jet stream, you are messing with weather patterns all over the world. What's happened, Matt, is that very predictably, exactly as I thought it would happen, the, the jet stream is thinning out so badly that it can't hold the dense, cold Arctic air in the Arctic. 
and we are now having what people are referring to for the first time in human history. Did anybody ever hear of the idea of a polar vortex up until six months ago, three months ago? I don't think so. No. They used to exist in the Arctic, but they had never, I mean, very rarely reached down so low and for so long into the Northeast and the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, and that's why Bismarck in Fargo, North Dakota, was always the Fargo, particularly was the coldest place in America, because that's where the, the, the dip would get into the country, because the jet stream was so strong, it could contain that, um, that cold, very dense air up in the Arctic. And that's really important for two reasons. One, when you can't contain it, when you thin the jet stream out so badly that it's literally a, it's like a fence that collapses so the cold air comes rushing down all the way to Atlanta, for goodness sakes. Polar temperatures in Atlanta? If people don't get the connection on that one, they're really missing the boat here. Now, the, the flip side of that is when you let all that cold air come crashing down, not only do you screw up the economy in the lower 48 states, which you do, you also screw it up in Alaska because all the hot air then goes up at the sides and, the, and, and returns to the Arctic. Right. So you're getting an Arctic warming as you're getting a continental United States freezing. And the result is you've got the warmest year on record with, with the most missed snow days on record since they started keeping track. In and Alaska. You've got, you know, pardon me? In Alaska? No, I'm talking about the, the snow days are in, in – if you take – and you oh, look, oh, look yeah. at the, like the snow days in, in, in for example, New York, um, Washington, D.C. has never seen snow. Atlanta rarely has seen snow like this, and it's coming after them with freezing rains. And I mean, it's just – it's amazing. People in California don't realize, because they have the opposite problem, drought. People don't realize how bad the ice and snow conditions have been for at least 40 states this year. Remember, yeah. I think it was just the last program, I revised my GDP estimate for the entire year down by a quarter of a point because of the depressive effect on retail and because people were going to be paying astronomically high amounts of money for heating fuel. So with paying for heating oil and natural gas, thereby reducing their ability to have other money to spend and also pushing the price of gasoline for cars up as the refineries continue to deliver more heating oil and less gasoline for cars. Okay, we're, we're getting double whammy. We're paying more for gas in our tanks. We're paying, if you live in the East or in the Midwest, you're paying more for gas, natural gas, or heating oil to heat your home because you're freezing. And, and in some cases, double what you're used to paying, by the way. So when you combine all these factors, and you've already got a terrible disparity between rich and poor, so the, so the, 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 top, the bottom 98%, which is a big bottom 98%, is cash-strapped already, and the bottom 80% of this economy is unbelievably underwater. When that all happens, and then you throw the polar vortex on top of it, you disrupt the buying patterns of the entire American economy. Now, we'll get some of that back in a couple of quarters for reasons I can explain. But for right now, for January and February, retail has been hurt, and it's understandable. And people's uh, disposable income has been crushed. Yeah. And these are the issues that climate change does. And what I want people to watch is don't assume that polar vortex this year is as bad as it will ever get. Because if you think polar vortex is bad, London's underwater. I mean, the U.K. has been inundated with flooding. All of that is because there's 5% more moisture in the air than there was just 10, 11 years ago because of global warming. You're having the hottest rec year on record, and it's going to go on to be the hottest on record if one of the top two or three. So the polar vortex is an abnormality of a shift of dense cold air from the pole where it belongs down to the lower 48 where it doesn't belong and an acceleration of heating 
at the Arctic. So I want people to realize the speed with which climate change is happening is now going at a gallop, and it will accelerate. You see the hockey stick, which shows the CO2 concentrations, and we're now over 406 parts per million as measured internationally. That, that hockey stick that shows that CO2 shooting up for the first time in 750,000 years, and we know that because of the ice core samples. When you see that CO2 shooting up and heating the atmosphere, it means that the planet's now starting to cook itself as more and more methane gets released. Well, I think people follow what I'm saying, but just to put it in a crystal clear final sentence, climate change is accelerating. Weather weirding is the characteristic we've been talking about. You would see, you're seeing it. It's going to get much, much worse, and I think people need to be prepared for it, not just the first village and Fiji to depart its home because it's literally gone underwater. Watch out for every city in the world that's less than a couple hundred feet above sea level. And I think I just described 75% of the population of the planet. So, Ronaldo, I want to make sure our, our uh, listeners can get the information they need on this. Uh, one way they can get more information about this is if they want to write to us at info at worldbusiness.org. Uh, we're happy to answer questions. Another way is if you – there's two videos I want to draw people's attention to on our website. If you go to worldbusiness.org and take a look under the video section on the homepage, there's one that allows you to see the melting of the polar ice cap, uh, the northern polar ice cap, that is just an incredible video to watch the destruction of the ancient – or the old sea ice. And that's, you know, one of, one of the factors that's creating weather weirding. And then another one is a video about the permafrost melt, which Ronaldo mentioned which is uh, an extremely dangerous tipping point that in the video is predicted around 1.5 degrees increase above historical no uh, averages in temperature. The uh, methane that's currently trapped in frozen soil in the Arctic region begins to melt and burp out uh, uh, into the atmosphere, greatly accelerating global warming. So those two videos I would recommend highly. Um, one, one, yeah, thing and one other thing, Matt, just I want to add one thing, because we've talked about it in the past, but I just want to capture it in the same paragraph you just used. So you've got this methane release from the permafrost. We've talked a lot about that. But I've also been talking for a number of years now about the, the, the burping that the ocean is beginning to do from the release of toxic and noxious gases, greenhouse gases, from what are called hydrates, H-Y-D-R-A-T-E-S. And I was saddened but pleased that a major study just came out on the hydrates in the Arctic. And what that study shows is at best case, at a 3.5 degrees centigrade increase above the baseline, and we're close to one degree already, um, you, you could get a burp, which would be a substantial overwhelming release of methane currently trapped in the cold Arctic subsurfaces. That subsurface or those hydrates is now in fact beginning to, to exude lots of gas. It's detectable levels. And as we warm the planet, and we particularly warm the Arctic, those hydrates become more of a factor. Some thoughtful observers now believe that the hydrates in the Arctic will actually be even more destructive than the meth because of the methane release, than the methane being released from the permafrost. So we, we are now seeing it galloping towards that conclusion. And when I first released our book eight years ago, the number one question left in my mind when we went to press was, holy cow, is hydrate release really possible? If it is, oh my goodness. And as people know from listening to this show, um, one of the top climatologists in the world, 
Professor Lawrence Bagard confirmed to me, yes, in fact, it's not only possible, you're correct, Ronaldo, it's happening, and it's going to accelerate. And we're now seeing that acceleration in the Arctic, which is very, very, very concerning. Uh, on that note, the, the Academy works not only to bring this kind of information to our listeners and to people who follow our work, but we're also trying to uh, work to actually avert this disaster scenario. One of our projects is the uh, California Moonshot Project, which we'll be rolling out more later uh, this month or next. Um, but the concept is to help California transition to 100% renewable energy within 10 years, uh, an ambitious goal, but one that we know is achievable for various reasons. Uh, we'll talk more about that. But part of the Safe Energy Project, um, Ronaldo, we had a big re uh, study released this week. Because, wait, 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 Matt, Matt, I know where you're going, but give just one footnote and then go there. Sure. I just want to also say to people, just to finalize this point, um, the, the Academy has been developing a number of positive articles, responses to climate change. Because, see, there are things we can do, and we're not going to go into them now, but we can suck CO2 back out of the atmosphere. We can re-solidify uh, it into plastics that won't biodegrade for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In other words, if we take seriously the crisis I'm talking about, all sorts of opportunities arise for us to change and adapt and and begin to reverse the climate destruction we've done. The California Moonshot Project that you just started to talk about is exactly one way to do that. It's a huge initiative to replace all fossil fuel, all nuclear fuel, within 10 years or less at no additional cost to the rate payers in California. That's the type of dramatic thing we need to do if we're going to get our hands around climate change and unleash inexpensive renewable energy, which doesn't add CO2 at all, so zero carbon emissions, and at the same time gives us an increasingly cheaper source of energy over time with which we can pay to suck the CO2 out of the air so that we can pay to turn it into plastic pellets, etc. So there are a lot of things we can do. We've got to get clear the crisis is that urgent, that imminent, and the Academy is here to help people understand what they can do. And I'm going to make one commercial plug for the Academy. The number one thing everybody listening to my voice can do, if you really care, about your future and that of everybody who's going to be alive in 21 years when this all comes home to roost. And it's going to be happening increasingly between now and then. If you will do one thing right now, resolve to tell at least three or four or five people about this radio show. Get them to start listening. Let's, let's get together. Let's be this new species that is capable of seeing an adverse future and choosing not to have that future be our own. Let's grab the initiative. And the first thing that you can do if you're listening is to tell somebody else to listen to. We need to get our voices out there. And there are many ways we're doing it. I don't know if we'll get a chance at the end of the show, Matt, to talk about the alliance meeting coming up. But there are many ways people can start to take and make a stand. Because you can't do everything does not give you permission to do nothing. First thing you've got to do, get other people to listen to the show, and let's start talking about it. Yeah, and stay in touch with us. Sign up for our email list on our website and uh, if you aren't already there. And spread the word. Share this link on Facebook. Uh, tweet it to your friends. And uh, share it word of mouth. I think that's the best way. I've always learned about new and interesting sources of information from people who I find credible and intelligent. So please do become an agent for change. Help share the, the, the word about this show. And uh, continue to stay in touch with us. We really appreciate your feedback. Ronaldo. 
I want to move now to quickly talk about our health impact study that we released. Uh, we found that we, we commissioned a study on nuclear power and the effect of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant on the central coast of California on the local population. Could you uh, talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing it up, Matt, people need to know. So we released that study on March 3rd, just three days ago. It is the first time in the history of the United States that we are aware where we were able to take uh, epidemiological data, so the data of people's health situations, broken out by zip code. We in the academy had predicted, because we've done this before using county breakouts, we had predicted that the plume of radioactive isotopes, primarily strontium-90, that's emitted legally every day from Diablo Canyon nuclear reactor, the last reactor operating in California, we predicted that if you knew where, where the wind was blowing, which we did, the prevailing winds are from the northwest, and we said if you do that and you, and you, and you know the velocity of those winds, you can calculate fairly accurately where those radioactive isotopes are going to fall, and where they fall will have accelerated high cancer rates. So we then took a zip code analysis. We looked at the zip codes from right next to the plant all the way down to about 85 miles south of the plant, because at about 75, 80 miles away, given the, the, the relatively modest prevailing winds in, in San Diablo Canyon, you have a zero fall off. And what we found was exactly what uh, the Academy had predicted. We found that the, that the zip codes underneath that plume of radioactive isotopes went from being below average cancer clusters to dramatically higher cancer clusters over the state of California. Way below average to way, way, way above average. In some cases, like melanoma, off the charts. Um, in other cases, uh, childhood leukemias, uh, breast cancers dramatic, dramatic increases by zip code. And, and we literally looked, okay, what would happen to the zip code that, let's say, is 15 miles south of the plant where the greatest concentration is? What if you looked at a zip code that's way to the east, two or three zip codes to the east, where the wind doesn't blow the radioactive isotopes? And sure enough, in those zip codes, you see normal behavior. But when you look at the zip codes right underneath that plume, you go, oh, my gosh, if you're sitting right next to the plant, you're probably in better shape because it's going over your head. It's being emitted up the stack. But by the time you get 10, 12, 14 miles away, those isotopes are starting to fall to the ground. At 15 miles is the, out is the peak drop. And then it, it thins out every mile you get past that till about 65 miles away where you start to get back into normal ranges. And you only see that in the zip codes directly under the plume. You do not see it in the zip codes to the right. So we now know that there's a direct correlation of cancer and living in proximity to a nuclear power plant if you're downwind. We've known that, uh, Jerry Brown and myself, Dr. Brown and I have known that since our book in 1997, where we first started doing it countywide county, when we got this study back. And, and the people who did the study, by the way, Matt, for us that we commissioned, the Academy paid to have this done by an outside group, which is the best group in the country for tracking this kind of data, headed up by a guy named Joe Mangano the Radiation and Public Health Project. Uh, he's been doing these studies, and he's got, I think he's got 32 peer-reviewed articles published now. I mean, Joe is really the expert in this area. So we went to the number one guy in the field and said, we'll pay for it. Tell us on a zip code basis. And why we were able to do that is California is one of the few states that does keep health data by zip codes. So we went back, looked at it from before Diablo Canyon opened to today, and the data is appallingly what we thought it would be. Everybody under that plume is legitimately a target of extremely high cancer rate increases. 
And to, to read that study, you can go to our website. It's the first item on the website at worldbusiness.org. Uh, Ronaldo, I want to turn to our guest now. Kay Peterson actually has a real stake in a, a nuclear power discussion. She and I had talked about it because she lives near a nuclear power plant. But uh, that's not why she's on today. She's here to help us deal with uh, some really important challenges as adults that we continue learning and look at learning in a new way. Kay Peterson is a principal at Learning Partners Group and Harlan Peterson Partners, LLC, where she specializes in experiential learning and adult development. Kay designs and deploys leadership and personal development programs based on experiential learning to businesses, professional services, healthcare, coaching, and education sectors in order to increase learning capacity and develop growth mindset. Kay has an MBA from Case Western Reserve University, the Weatherhead School of Management, and over 30 years of executive experience in the private and nonprofit sectors. Uh, Kay, welcome to our show. Thank you, Matt and Ronaldo. It's great to be with you. Hearing um, your everything you've talked about really underscores um, the need for learning and continued adult development. Um, I was looking at the mission of World Business Academy before the show started today, and this shift in consciousness that is so basic to your mission is really what we are trying to do. But that shift requires a special kind of development in adults that we refer to as vertical development, and it all begins with learning. There, We are facing the challenges that you have talked about, Ronaldo, today are not technical challenges at all. They are really adaptive ones that require new thinking. And they can only be met by transforming our mindset and advancing to a more sophisticated stage of development. And in our program, we call that integration, a move toward integration. Um, it's really um, using... Uh, a different way of knowing that's much more sophisticated than conventional um, intelligence or um, ways of conventional mindset. Okay, and, uh, let me ask a question. Before you go past that, because I think you're on a really yes. good point, I just want to underscore it. Um, be, and, and by the way, mm-hmm. thanks for joining the show, and it's been, uh, you, an, it's been an interesting journey, you and I, since we started talking about this, what, a year and a half ago, I think. Yes. Yeah, um, I just want you to underscore something that you, you said at the outset because um, I think people need to understand why we're doing this and why it relates to this show. Um, given climate change, given the rapidly changing economic conditions, given all the insecurities people are facing, what you are saying, and I agree with this, is that people need to accelerate their ability to learn and to really look at how we learn, not just that we must learn. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And what is um, so central to our program, Ronaldo, is making learning, the process of learning, explicit. You know, we all have our own view of what learning is, but our work is based on the um, experiential learning of David Kolb, and he identified a four-step cycle that really encompasses all the dimensions of learning that few of us actually um, few of us actually use in our daily process. Would you like to know what that is? Or well, in- I think I would, but I'm going to. I want to focus because I know you're mm-hmm. a very big fan of David Cole, but of course I've read your paper, mm-hmm. and I'm and uh, I'm assuming um, Matt is that going to be available soon? Is Kay's final document going to be available soon for us to tell people? 
Yeah, and we'll be uh, sending out a download link for uh, people to get it from our email list. So when people sign up, they will receive it by email. And, and that's going to be as an ebook, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm just saying that so people know that it's, it's a very unintimidating format we're using, which is the shorter ebook <laughs> format. So don't feel like you're going to get caught into a, a long conversation you'll never be able to figure out your way out of. Um, right. And, and I want to incentivize people. Because the opposite of what Kay is about to describe is putting your head in the sand like an ostrich. Absolutely. Well, and the whole purpose of this, Ronaldo, is to empower learners with this model because so many of us want to change, but we really don't know how. And this is a simple roadmap, a meta model for any change or adaptation. Right. And so, so the opposite is, you know that old saying, change or die? What you're saying really is the times we live in require us to focus consciously on being better learners because we've got to learn so much to change quick enough. Well, absolutely, and we really have to start looking at the world through a new lens. You know, we are um, living with – we need more wisdom and effectiveness in the world, a deeper understanding – and um, to do that, we really have to evolve the way we face this complex world from a static to a real dynamic way of so, approaching it. So you mean even if I'd like to cling to the fantasy that the soundbite world is real, it's not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the things that is so central is we have to base everything on our own experience and really take charge of learning and make sense of things in new ways. And that requires continued adult development. You know, at one time we thought we stopped learning as adults. We just reached a point in adulthood where we were as mature and um, as evolved as we were going to get. And we now know that's not true at all. We can continue learning and continue developing and becoming um, increasingly able to deal with complexity. Yeah, I, I, I want to urge people, when you, when you do get a copy of Kay's work, which is excellent and it's really fresh off the press, um, she will provide you with some little interesting, specific, tactical solutions, very strategic solutions, a, a whole methodology she just alluded to that Dr. Kolb came up with. I, I just want, before we go to, the, to some of the broader strokes on that, I just want to under, underline, one of our fellows for over 20 years wrote a seminal book, Peter Senge is the fellow's name, he wrote a book called the, the, the Fifth Discipline, in which he talked about the future of corporations was, were to become permanent learning institutions. In her book, Kay also refers to Jack Walsh, who took a, a $14 billion company into a $400 billion company by focusing 50% of his time on the learning aspect rather than the doing aspect. What I want people on this call to listen to, all of you, thousands of people listening, I want you to remember what Kay is about to talk about affects not only what corporations do, it's about how you will prosper better individually because it is no longer an option for you to stop learning. We have to learn. It is grow or die. And Kay's methodology, I think, takes some of the fear out of that because you show us how we don't have to be in a formal educational structure to accelerate our learning capacity, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And this advanced learning, what, what we're seeing in our practice, Ronaldo, is that specialists who have been running companies, leading, um, leading organizations, 
are finding that they are just not equipped to deal with this next level of complexity. They really need leadership that's more holistic, that involves more synthesis than analysis, and problem solving that's cooperative. They're dealing with teams all over the world with different functions and in different systems. And they want to spend less time solving problems and really more time figuring out which problems should be solved. And so they really um, need a method to handle all that complexity. Well, um, I, I, Matt, I don't know how much time we have left because I know that we've got a very tight uh, envelope here, but I want to also recommend, if nothing else, I would urge you to pick up a copy of Kay's book because in this very short, less than 50-page ebook, she gives you the nine learning styles that really give you the choice of how you choose to learn. And she incentivizes you to see if by balancing those nine in a new and in powerful way, you can come out of, the, out of your natural or default, if you will, learning style and embrace eight other learning styles in a synthesis that then becomes, for you, a much better learning technique. Um, and, and if you just wanted to mention, Kay, so people get a sense of what those nine are, I've got them in front of me because I'm looking at your very effective balancing compass, but if you just <laughs> want to mention them. Yes, we've actually done it in a learning compass. The styles, the whole idea, Ronaldo, you're exactly right, is to build flexibility in these styles. And they represent really the whole of our capabilities. They're initiating, experiencing, imagining, reflecting, analyzing, thinking, deciding, acting, and balancing. So once, And we are fully capable of developing capacity in each of those styles. Yeah, and, and, and I know we have to ring off at this point, Matt, but the balancing, when you look at this really great graphic Kay came up with, I love this graphic of the compass, because what you see is the eight basically experiential type learning styles that are available to us, and the word balancing appears in the center of the compass. That's where balance occurs. Right, Kay? It is, and the whole idea is to build that flexibility based on context so that when you're dealing with the Ukraine, you, you know what to do. When you're dealing with climate change, you can use facts as well as experience. So it's all, it is all about going to all of those poles. Yeah, and I, Ronaldo, as I've been uh, working with Kay, on, I, I helped edit some of this book, and it was a really interesting learning experience for me uh, to really examine where my comfort zone is and to see the utility of the forms of learning. You know, learning is broadly defined as essentially interaction with the world in a lot of ways. But to see the different techniques that I underemploy and to consciously move towards those and practice them, uh, it, it was extremely helpful for, for me to balance the, you know, in, in our work, we deal with so many different uh, issues from the microeconomic to the macroeconomic to the uh, potentially world-ending to the potential solutions for things like climate change um, to just day-to-day -day interactions with and relationships. I found this work useful in every aspect of my consciousness. So I also want to endorse Kay's work and recommend that everyone do download it as soon as it becomes available, which should be early next week. Uh, Kay, I want to just make sure and open up to you to, to make sure we capture anything else you want to add before we move to our next topic. Well, I just want to, continue to encourage everyone to really think about the way they learn and begin thinking about learning in that broader context. And we all have these 
natural habitual patterns that begin to, you know, that we develop and hold, but then they start running us as internal programs. And when we have a strength that we overuse, it actually can become a weakness. And so we don't have to let that happen. We can um, develop this integrative consciousness that allows us to um, take this holistic perspective on learning. So I um, thank you so much for allowing me to share this on the show, and I hope that everyone will download the book. I, I, I think they will because I think what we've given them with this little, just this little bit of a hors d'oeuvre you've served up, Kay, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is we've given them the reason to care. And if you care, your book's very readable. It's a quick read. It's not difficult. If you care enough to even think about it, give Kay's book a shot, and you'll be glad you did. And then maybe someday when you meet Ellen, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke, okay, everybody. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kay. Bye-bye. Well, that was great, Marilla. Yeah, and I do want to recommend to our audience that uh, they do check out Kay's book. When we publish it, it'll be on our website, and it will come out via email. Um, just personally working with Kay has been a pleasure. I, I really deeply appreciate taking the time to examine the way I learn and interact. Um, it, it's really worthwhile. I don't know. I think you probably had the same experience when you read when you read her her work and all those. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, I, one of the reasons I want to deal with the incentive so much, uh, Matt, is because it's very easy to dismiss, you know, seminal work like Kay's and Dr. Kolb's as being something for, you know, lock it away in the back of the sociology department. But what right. she's really doing is she's bringing those tools which people in business and normal everyday life don't access, and she's bringing those tools into your daily life. Exactly. And that's extraordinarily valuable. I, I, I met Kay, by the way, folks, at Case Western. Um, where I've, the academy's had a very long relationship with the business school case, uh, the, the Weatherhead School of Business there, and with one of our prominent fellows, uh, uh, David Cooper Ryder. And it was through David that I actually met Kay originally, who was looking at trying to leave the business world that she'd been in and, and bring some of these new tools to bear on the business world. So I, I encourage people to, uh, to think of Kay's work as the antidote to the ostrich. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Ronaldo, you mentioned wanting to talk about the Business Alliance for the Future uh, and the meeting coming up in March. Would you like to share that with our audience? Yeah, basically, um, just real quickly, we, we've um, spent since last March of 2013, uh, the Academy as a service to the public and uh, to all the progressive business principles that we stand for, we've taken the lead through one of our directors, Vince DiBianca, who's set up a committee at the request of a number of business people and a bunch of different groups we took the lead in organizing a meeting which is going to happen on march 17th 18th and 19th in santa barbara where 55 of the leaders of the progressive business community are coming together to to begin to see how we can articulate common wisdom what we know to be true i.e raising the minimum wage is great for the economy it's not an act of charity it's an act of intelligence well, we know, by get, we believe, by getting the top leadership of these various progressive business organizations together in one room for a couple of days, we believe we can start to find ways to articulate the alternative business view, which is really people-centered and not um, multinational corporation-centered. So in this country, in the U.S., and unfortunately, because of our influence globally, the, the United States Chamber of Commerce, which represents only 35 to 50 companies, literally, 
although they got 3,500 members. It's just very few companies that they represent. And they seem to be the voice of business whenever reporters ask, when in fact they're not the voice of business. They're the voice of McDonald's. They're the voice of Walmarts. They're bought and paid for by Exxon. And the progressive business community, which we in the World Business Academy, Social Venture Network, Social Venture Partners, the Future 500, um, Series, uh, I could go on and on with the list, we represent this more thoughtful, intellectual approach to like, gee, what's really good for the economy? And it turns out what's good for the economy usually is what's best for people. And yeah. you don't ever get that from reading the financial press now. Yeah, and I think that the meeting that's coming up is very exciting because we – you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce nationally is different than the local Chamber of Commerce that works for small businesses in your community. The, the National Chamber of Commerce is the dominant voice of business in the United States and on the media. And it just totally underrepresents the people out there that are doing well while engaging in business. So I look forward to seeing this powerful coalition we've brought together strengthen and really coordinate to make a difference and make themselves heard um, Ronaldo, I want to move on to our lightning round here with a few minutes left. Uh, you said you wanted to talk about the price of gold. Where do you see uh, gold going in the next few months? Okay, well, gold, as people have noticed, has started being more active in the last month or two because of the uh, imminent um, backing off. The Fed's declared it's going to be getting to back off of the uh, uh, QE3 or whatever QE we're on at this point. Uh, yeah. And that has caused people to start thinking about the inflation risk. And so gold has been bouncing around a little more than usual, but still is down at pretty much all-time lows. I am not recommending people buy gold yet because the inflation threat has not yet really made itself manifest. At some point, those people who do believe in using gold as a hedge against inflation, and there's a lot of arguments why that's a good idea and there's some arguments why it's a bad idea, but if that's what you believe, it's still premature to buy gold as an inflationary hedge. I notice that it's coming closer, however, and I'm watching it very, very closely. So I would urge you to stay tuned into the program, and we will give you an inflation warning before we think it's too late. Remember, I'm not going to try and pick the very, very bottom, bottom, bottom dollar of the gold market, and I'm never going to try and pick the very, very top, top, top dollar. What I'm going to tell you is when I'm confident that the, the turn has occurred, meaning the gold has more chance of going up, significantly more chance of going up than going sideways or down, that's when I'll put out a buy recommendation on gold again, which as everybody who listens to the show knows, I put out a sell recommendation quite some time ago, and so far that's been accurate, because um, I, when I put it out, gold was dramatically higher than it is today. Um, my reason for mentioning it, though, is because there is an inflation risk that's beginning to be perceived out in the future. Uh, what has happened with the polar vortex and, and the climatological changes here and elsewhere around the world has probably put a little slowdown on that. When I have to reduce my GDP estimate by a quarter of a point, that's, a, that's saying that economic activity is dropping. And believe me, the Fed is watching that too. So the Fed is not going to be aggressively moving towards further reduction of its buying program its qualitative easement program. It won't do that aggressively while it still sees these inherent weaknesses and where unemployment will continue to be suffering as a result in now in part of the polar vortex itself. However, as we do things like adopt more minimum wages state by state, as we do things like get our act together as a country and stop doing things that are uh, foolish from an economic point of view, uh, i.e. I'm glad that Congress recently decided to not uh, put the country through another shutdown, over the budgets, and, 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 and I'm hopeful that we are not going to have anything 
with debt ceiling rise again, it looks like the Republicans are telegraphing they won't do that to themselves again. So the economy, which is really loaded to do much better than it's doing now, I think will continue to pick up in 2014. I think you're going to see at least 2.75% GDP growth, which would be a substantial increase over last year, could get as high as 3 uh, And as that happens, gold will become an, an inflation hedge idea. It's not there yet. I also wanted to say, however, in the same context, I've been recommending for many months now dividend stocks. You still have time to buy a really, really, really high-quality stock, which pays a really good dividend, meaning at least – Two to three percent. So when you live in a world where, if you're lucky, you get one percent for a certificate of deposit, and you can get two to three percent for for a stock that is stable, has a good earnings history over at least two to three decades, and has a good attractive dividend, I think it's really worth considering. And that's where I would be. In fact, as the market improves and I think it will improve slightly some more going forward, you will have the benefit of a rise in the stock price as well as the continuing dividend that you bought locked in at these low levels. So I would recommend dividend stocks. Do we have time for me to go into um, oil? Yeah, I think we have a couple minutes. I want to talk about oil. So please, do, do see, let us know what your outlook is for oil prices and how that's going to affect the economy. Okay, so oil prices were headed down uh, two months ago. We talked about that. We explained what the forces were that were pushing it down. Those forces still are at work. Um, one of the forces being that Putin cannot stay in power if he doesn't pump a lot of oil, but he's got to keep the price up to at least $100 a barrel. Uh, the Saudi monarchy has to keep prices up at least $100, $110 a barrel. So there's a tremendous built-in pressure by the oil producers to keep the price of oil up. However, the amount of oil available, and it keeps increasing, because of fracking in some places, also because some countries that weren't producing oil have been able to get back in the oil market, i.e. Iraq. Uh, other, other places which were pumping at one level are pumping at a much higher level, i.e. Canada. That's because of the tar sands. So when you, when, you, when, you, when you look at these different factors that are adding dramatic increases in the amount of barrels of oil available on the world market, and you look at the reduction of oil consumption by the U.S. automobile fleet, because of the increase in the CAFE fuel standards and the switch of the, of the national fleet over to more fuel-efficient cars, which is driving down consumption of oil in the U.S., except for the polar vortex. So the, the prices were coming down until the refineries realized, oh, my goodness, people are going to run out of home heating oil. So let's, get more, let's make the refineries produce more of that, and it will reduce our backlog, our inventory, our supplies of, 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 of petroleum for gasoline. So we've had a, a rise, a slight rise, not a big one, in the price of gas in the last two months because the pressure on heating the homes of America has caused fuel prices, particularly natural gas prices, to rise dramatically. Also, home heating oil has risen. So what's going to happen is oil, when the polar vortex is over, and I'm predicting that this is all going to be behind us in a couple of weeks, and then we will have other weather craziness, but it won't be the polar vortex. You'll, it'll take two or three months for the reserves and the inventories to rebalance and stabilize. And at that point, I would anticipate we will see the beginning of a further drop in the price of West Texas Intermediate Crude, currently trading at $102 a barrel, was at $96 a barrel before the polar vortex. My guess is it's going back there. Uh, the Brent oil, which is sometimes quoted as North Sea oil, 
will remain high at, I'm going to guess, at least $105 a barrel because of Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. But the difference between those two, 96, 97 in America, 105, 106 in Europe, that gap will close over the then following three to six months. And what you'll see is uh, a decrease at the pump as well. And that could be in place as early as this summer. Well, it's very interesting, and I hope our audience will stay tuned. Ronaldo, I want to thank you for today's show. Um, I want to ask if you have any closing thoughts before we sign on. Um, I think that there's, um, you know, that Chinese curse, we live in interesting times. That certainly describes the Ukraine and describes Crimea. Uh, it describes, frankly, in a positive way, that the administration, the Obama administration, and you know on this show we've been calling for a year for the president to become more active. I like a lot what I saw in the budget he put forward. It's a smart budget. I like that he raised the minimum wage federally. I like that he set the tone for six states to do it, and I believe other states will. I believe the economy in the United States will continue to improve um, once this last batch of polar vortex gets behind us. And I believe that climate change is going to force us to make adaptions, adaptations in our lifestyle, which will be dramatic. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll leave you with is the, there's going to be a lot of chatter in the next few weeks, as there has been recently, on the XL pipeline. I want people to know just a couple of very simple facts about the XL pipeline. 100% of the oil it will deliver to Houston will be sold overseas, mostly China. So there is no benefit to the U.S. economy whatsoever other than the profits of the refineries in Houston that will refine the oil and then ship it to China. So the Exile Pipeline, which is this giant boondoggle, which is going to cause the Canadians, because the Canadians said without the pipeline they won't do as much destruction of tar sands, is going to cause further destruction of tar sands, phenomenal releases of methane, it, the possibility of a, of, a, of a leak of that pipeline on the Ogallala walk, uh, water aquifer, which basically is the water 30 million people drink in the Midwest. All of these things, though, the chances of a, of a disaster, the fact that the Canadians are doing something globally destructive to the environment with actually making the tar sands, the type of oil you get with tar sands is the th thickest kind of crud you can possibly deal with, with the worst environmental implications. And fourth and not final, nobody in America is going to profit but a few oil companies in Houston that own refineries from this whole deal. Nobody profits because none of this oil is for America. When you put all that together, I say, please, America, write your congressman, write the president, tell him to stop the XL pipeline. It's insane on every level, and I hope that the president shows enough backbone to do that. Thanks, Matt, With for that, taking the time today. Yeah, absolutely. With that, on behalf of the World Business Academy, I want to thank our listeners and I thank our guest, Kay Peterson. We'll be back next month with another episode of New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Thank you very much.